Sunday school or first hour of class or whatever we call it here. Um, for those that weren't uh, here for the sort of summary last week or the overview of what we did cover before summer break, um, you remember those that were here prior to summer break, uh, we ended our, our discussion with the ministry of Christ and I didn't mean to leave it as a cliffhanger because we pretty much all know the story anyway, but uh, we'll begin, we will start this semester, I guess, uh, with uh, continuing the story of, of Christ's life here on earth and move this week into what is called the passion of Christ. <clears throat> so um, what we're going to do, just as we did prior to the break, is begin each class with two scripture readings, uh, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. And if I could have a volunteer to read Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. If you look on your sheet here, I have a, I have a typo that says Isaiah 52, 1 through 12, but it's actually Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. Can we have a, who would like to read Isaiah 53, Margie? All right, thank you. And then Philippians 2, 4 through 11. Who's got that one? Philippians 2. Okay, we got it. All right, let's. Let's kick it off with our scripture readings in Isaiah 53 and Philippians 2. Go ahead, Margie. <clears throat> Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. For we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Many to be accounted righteous. 
and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of the many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thank you. That was uh, the entire chapter of uh, Isaiah 53, which is a, a very good uh, summary in the Old Testament of the role of Jesus uh, in his last week, and especially those last days uh, on the cross. Um, there's some very familiar passages in there, uh, some of them from Handel's Messiah, others just from uh, passages that we have, have come to know and love. Uh, With his stripes we are healed. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But uh, what I'd like to draw attention to is uh, verse 10 and 11, in which uh, Isaiah writes, uh, with his soul he makes an offering for guilt, and especially out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. So keep that in mind as we, as we go through this week's topic. And if I could have Philippians 2, 4 through 11. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him Thank you. Uh, before we begin, uh, let's open in prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to look at your word and to remember the suffering that your son went through on this earth. Uh, on, on our behalf, I pray that we would uh, pray that we would be open to your Holy Spirit as we look at your word and remember this time. I ask that you would give me the words to reflect your majesty and your glory, and that uh, in all things we would remember that you are sovereign over this universe, and that we owe our allegiance to you, and we owe you all glory here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. At the risk of going long this morning, I'm kind of going to go off my notes here for a little bit just to introduce the topic. Uh, so forgive me if I get this wrong, Pastor Lewis. Uh, I, I, may, I may not get these theories completely right, but when we talk about the passion of Christ or the atonement, specifically the atonement, there are some competing theories about what the atonement actually meant. And there is uh, what's called the ransom theory of atonement in which some people subscribe to the belief that God paid Satan off for our sake through the sacrifice of his son. But then afterwards, uh, what Satan didn't know is that God knew Jesus would rise from the dead all along. And so we got the better end of the deal and God bested Satan. There is also what's called the moral improvement theory of the atonement in which we, as the human race, are responsible 
for putting uh, Jesus on the cross. It was our doing. It was our sin that put, in the physical sense, on, at Golgotha. Our sinful nature was responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. And God allowed this so that we would see ourselves for who we really are and that uh, we would, as a human race, become more moral because we saw, we saw our own wickedness in our actions of putting Jesus on the cross. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back, basically, to make us see how wicked we are. And that way we would, from that point forward, become more moral in and of ourselves. I may be simplifying this a little bit, but I, have to, I, can't, I can't spend too much time on it. But then finally, and this is the theory I think that makes the most sense, is most consistent with God's character, is the satisfaction theory of atonement in which uh, God, because he is both good and just, or because he is holy, required a perfect sacrifice to satisfy his requirement for justice or to satisfy his wrath, put another way. And Jesus, being the perfect man, unblemished, was that sacrifice, but it was God's ordained will that Jesus be put on the cross, not our, not our free will that charged Jesus as guilty and put him on the cross, nor was it some sort of bet with Satan uh, that God would offer uh, Jesus as a sort of ransom payment. Now, there, of course, the, the, the verbiage of ransom is in the Bible, and I have no problem with it, but I don't subscribe to the belief that God and Satan were in this uh, betting match and God happened to get the best of Satan through this sacrifice. But I'm, I'm saying that because these theories are out there. I don't subscribe to them, but I think as we go through today's topic, we will see uh, hopefully what Jesus had to go through and uh, hopefully we'll get a better appreciation for uh, the sacrifice of Jesus and the satisfaction of God's wrath of what Jesus had to go through. Um, I did pass out a handout that has uh, some questions and some key words on it, but to be quite honest, this, this topic uh, this morning, I, I just can't approach it from a strictly cold historical um, viewpoint. It, it, it's too important. Um, and if I get emotional, uh, just bear with me because it is a very emotional topic uh, for me when we're talking about uh, the passion. But I think there's uh, the, the various viewpoints that we briefly went over have been around throughout the ages. And we saw, if you remember, before we uh, closed for, for the summer break, we were talking about the ministry of Christ and Jesus' tripartite role as the prophet, priest, and king. And we also went into very briefly a discussion of some of the modern heresies that are around surrounding the viewpoints of Jesus. And we discussed how these heresies, and I won't go into them now. If you want to, you can listen to uh, the previous lectures online. Uh, but they essentially, at their root, they are anti-Christian because they deny a Christ or an anointed Savior or a Messiah, someone that is there to save us. Uh, these heresies and these modern uh, viewpoints on Jesus don't necessarily deny Jesus as having existed, but if one is to strip 
Jesus' ministry, his death, and his resurrection, from any aspect of those salvific qualities, those that pertain to salvation, uh, if someone strips those qualities of Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection, then they are absolutely denying the Christness of Jesus. So many can call themselves Christians, and I think in doing so, by calling yourself a Christian, you're acknowledging the need for a Christ, the need for an anointed Savior, but these same people who call themselves Christians deny that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. And if in our world of, of uh, relativism and exist <coughs> existentialism, these people deny uh, that any person in history has fulfilled this role as the ultimate Savior. Some of these people even deny that God requires such a role. Why can't we just do it ourselves? Some people even, even that call themselves Christ, like John Shuck, will deny that God exists. But in doing this, while calling themselves Christians and denying the role of a Christ, they are, in my opinion, setting themselves up as the Christ, able to perform for themselves everything that's required for salvation and to assuage their own guilt. So we have many self-professing Christians in the church today, as we have really throughout history, uh, who elevate their own works above the work of Christ by placing upon Christ's efficient work on the cross a condition of their own actions. Or if I say it another way, they are saying that Christ's sacrifice, Christ's work here on, on earth, is only good insofar as we have something to do with it as well. That is not my viewpoint. So when analyzed this way, um, we see how many schools of thought throughout history are described as heresies because what they do is they elevate, by condition, man's work or my work or your work as prevenient or coming beforehand to salvation. I have to do something in order to get saved. We tell people, you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to get saved. It is that condition that enables Christ's work on the cross to actually work. Uh, this, by logical conclusion, makes us, it elevates mankind as more capable of atonement than is Jesus Christ, and therefore we put ourselves in a higher position of, of authority. But Christ's work and death on the cross, they say, only becomes meaningful and valuable after we have satisfied the requirements to procure it. Or, to put it another way, Christ's work is only good once we have paid the bill. But this week, um, we're going to be looking at the passion of Christ. Um, and I've mentioned how much of an emotional topic this is for me personally. Um, and I, I, can, I just can't look at it from a historic, just you know, strictly cold, analytic, historic perspective. Uh, but we will look at some of the um, external sources surrounding the crucifixion and, uh, at a later time. But this week, we'll pretty much be sticking to the passion narrative as it's found in the Gospels. Um, the passion of, of the Christ, including the death of Christ, uh, as an atoning work, is the essence of Christianity. It is, as R.C. Sproul called it, the sine qua non of Christianity, or that thing without which 
Christianity would not exist. Uh, without Christ's work as the atonement, we have no Christianity, or at least a Christianity that recognizes Jesus of Nazareth as the anointed, ultimate Savior of the guilt of mankind. So, the crucifixion, and of course we can't go through any lesson, even if it is uh, an emotional topic for me, we can't go through any lesson without an etymology uh, or a history of words. And so Christianity is the crucial point, the crucial moment of history. And I, I put the words crucial on your paper. You can see the word C-R-U-C. All right, this comes from the exact same word as crucifixion. In fact, it is very related because the crucifixion was so crucial to Christianity, we started using the word crucial to describe something that is of the utmost importance. Okay? Uh, the crucifixion also is the crux of the matter upon which everything hangs. All right? We also use the word crux, and you can see C-R-U-X, we get that from the same word of crucifixion. And we created these words because historically we have recognized uh, in Christendom the importance, the utmost importance of the crucifixion. And so our language, even today, reflects in our modern, in our just everyday common usage, it reflects the importance of Jesus' death on the cross. Now, on the liturgical calendar, uh, we call Palm Sunday the start of Holy Week, or put it another way, in other circles it's called Passion Tide. Uh, it's during this week, uh, recognized by the church, that within the course of five days, Jesus went from being hailed in a triumphal entry to Jerusalem as the Savior of the world, and five days later, he was delivered unto Pontius Pilate in what amounted to basically a democratic, small-d, death sentence. So what prompted such a shift? What happened in these five days that caused this serious turn of events? So we'll start with the triumphal entry. We'll start with Palm Sunday. The last time I taught this class, it happened to line up exactly on Palm Sunday, which was very nice. Uh, but uh, now we're in, the, we're in the season of the year in which actually... Uh, we're, next week, I believe, the Jewish uh, calendar celebrates the, the week of Sukkot, which actually has something to do with what we're talking about today. So from the Jewish perspective, as Jesus uh, entered into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry, entry uh, there, was a, there was a background surrounding this triumph, this riding into the city that had a very Jewish uh, particular uh, significance. If you remember, in Jesus' ministry, uh, his fame had grown throughout the land. Everyone knew of his works, of his healing, of his miracles. Uh, so these people, in their populist fervor, had, they'd become frustrated with the ruling authorities, both in the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, as well as the Roman government. There was a strain, there was a, a striving to uh, be free from all of this chaotic uh, regulation that was governing their daily life, both from the Pharisees saying you have to do not just A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but A1, A2, A3, all of these 
regulations that govern their daily life imposed by the legalistic Pharisees, as well as the uh, foreign oppression from the Roman government. And I don't mean to say that, comparatively speaking, the Romans were the worst governors in the world. Comparatively, they were actually uh, fairly tolerant of the Jewish uh, way of life. Nevertheless, it was still an affront to Jewish sensibilities that they had this pagan government in charge of them, telling them what they could do and what they couldn't do. So as Jesus is going throughout the land, performing these works, demonstrating his awesome power, and he's preaching about, what is he preaching about? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And people started to infer that Jesus was going to establish this kingdom of God in place of the Roman government or in place of this uh, chaotic regulation of Pharisaic legalism that was taking place throughout the land. So the significance of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey left no one, left no Jew guessing. Uh, Zechariah could not have been clearer when he wrote, Behold, your king cometh unto thee, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and he shall speak peace, he shall speak peace to the nations, or put another way, he shall speak peace to the heathen, or Greece and Rome. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece and wield you like a warrior's sword. Right, this is what Zechariah writes about the Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. So the celebration of the triumph was met as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, was met with resounding shouts throughout the streets. And they shout, Hoshanah, Hoshanah, which is to say, save us, we pray. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, it could be, I don't know for sure, but it could be that the full version, the full song that they sang was actually longer than just those, that, that, that title, if you will. Uh, the, the refrain comes from Psalm 118, and uh, verses 25 through 29, which is just a small section of the longer psalm itself, but it is a much longer version than just Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what we record in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, Psalm 118, 25 to 29 reads this, and see if you can hear the significance. Hoshana, we pray, O God. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalm of the, of the Hosanna is more significant than a simple song of praise. In Jewish ceremony, the Hoshana Rabbah was the conclusion of the Festival of Tabernacles, or the Feast of the Booths, which is actually coming up next week. Uh, it, it was commanded to be celebrated in Leviticus 23:40 as a reminder to Israel that, quote, your generations may know that I made the people of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So this Psalm 118 was sung as they circled the altar, remembering their promise of deliverance, not just their promise of deliverance from the land of Egypt, but their promise of deliverance from the world under the kingdom of God. The Hoshanats 
were sung seven times in honor of seven Jewish ancestors. They were sung, number one, for Abraham as the grandfather of Israel, for Isaac as the father of Israel, for Israel, for Joseph as the son of Israel, for Moses as the prophet of deliverance, for Aaron as the priest of deliverance, and for David as the king of deliverance. And so we see in these last three Hoshanats that were sung at the Feast of the Booths, the, the roles of prophet, priest, and king in regards to the deliverance of the Jews. So throughout the week of Sukkot, the priests would walk the perimeter of the temple once per day and seven times on the seventh day. Does that sound familiar? Uh, one, ra one rabbi expounded that this was to symbolize the breaking down of the wall between us and God the Father, just as he did in Jericho. Um, so there's a lot of significance behind this psalm of Hosanna uh, that we may not traditionally think about. So it's, it's much more significant that they sang this Hoshanat for Jesus, even though the celebration of Hoshana Rabbah would not happen for another six months. Nevertheless, we remember, if you look back at the ministry of Christ, how <clears throat> about six months prior to this, Jesus... Uh, told his disciples to go to the Feast of the Booths by themselves because his time had not yet come. Now here we are six months later and Jesus is riding into Jerusalem as the Messiah of deliverance. Even from their perspective, even from the Jews' perspective, it was a political deliverance, but they still knew he was a deliverer. So this was a recognition by the people of the messianic fulfillment in the person of Jesus but it also looked back, there's other significance as well, not just to the promise of deliverance uh, under the, uh, uh, from Moses and coming out of the land of Egypt, but it looked back on another celebration which was very similar, not one of messianic deliverance, but one of historic and political deliverance. In 1 Maccabees 13, we see the nation of Israel celebrating their deliverance from the pagan rulers of the day, from Antiochus, if you remember, uh, when Simon Maccabeus cleansed the temple and drove out the pagans. When Simon Maccabeus entered into Jerusalem in his triumph, uh, the Jews of that time greeted him, quote, with branches of palm trees and with harps and cymbals, with vials and hymns and songs, because there was destroyed a great enemy of Israel. So, as we can see to the disciples and to the followers of Christ, the significance of this event was at the point of being overbearing. There was so much loaded in this triumphal entry going into Jerusalem, not just relating to the deliverance from the land of Egypt, but their promised deliverance uh, from uh, the pagans of this world, and looking back even on the political deliverance under Simon Maccabeus. All of this was no doubt running through their mind as they were shouting, Hosanna in the highest. So from a Roman perspective, though, all right, there's a lot of elation, a lot of joy from the Jewish perspective here. But from the Roman perspective, there was something else altogether. Uh, Jesus riding into the capital city of Judea on a donkey uh, would have offended the Romans' imperial sensibilities. Uh, the Roman triumph, which consisted of a warrior or a hero uh, parading through the streets of Rome, coming through the gates of Rome and parading through the streets had a very long and storied history throughout the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic. Uh, it was celebrated, it was reserved for uh, only the most significant of heroes, 
that had accomplished some great feat. And by the time of Christ, the triumph was reserved solely for the emperor, who, if you remember, also proclaimed themselves to be God on earth. So to the Roman eyes, Jesus was not just riding into Jerusalem. He was declaring himself to be emperor. He was declaring himself to be king. And again, from the Roman perspective, if you are declaring yourself to be king, you're not declaring yourself to be the ruler of some small section of Palestine. Rather, if you are declaring yourself to be king, you are declaring yourself to be king of the whole world. So the high priests had a, had a problem. <laughs> These are the, uh, the officers who are both trying to maintain their relationships with the Jewish people and also trying to maintain their good political relationships with the Roman Empire. So they had a problem with uh, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey in triumphal entry. And they commanded Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Um, which, of course, Jesus did not do. And said he rebuked the high priest. Um, now, after the, the triumphal entry, something very interesting, in my opinion, happens. That week in Jerusalem, Jesus becomes uh, much more confrontational with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You thought he was confrontational before that. Look at the, look at the interaction with Jesus and the, and the Pharisees and Sadducees after the triumphal entry. He becomes much more confrontational with the priests and the scribes. All right? He curses the fig tree for not bringing forth fruit. He drives out the money changers in the temple. And think about what else is coming up in the year. Passover is, is looming on the horizon. And so these money changers in the temple, this was like the Black Friday of, uh, of sacrifices. Okay, Passover is coming, and these guys have all of their goods and wares out, and they're about to make a lot of money, more so than they would at any other time. Jews from all over the world are coming back to the temple, and Jesus drives them out. Uh, I just, just thought I'd throw that in there. He also, in his, in his discourses, he Publicly, publicly pronounces the seven woes upon the Pharisees and the scribes for their legalism and their hypocritical righteousness. He also foretells the destruction of the temple after being uh, reminded by his disciples of the temple's facade and its outward splendor. He foretells of the massive and widespread tribulation among his followers, that they'd be put to death, hated by all nations, and betrayed by those professing to be disciples of Christ. He also uh, foretells that the temple would once again be defiled with the abomination of desolation, just as it was back in the time of Antiochus. He also foretells that they would have to flee into the mountains away from civilization, culture, and commerce, and that they would be persecuted as they have never been persecuted before. All of this goes on immediately after Jesus' triumphal entry into the city. You look at his parables, they become much more dark much more macabre. The parable of the two sons has prostitutes and publicans supplanting the chief priests and the scribes' place in the kingdom of heaven. In the parable of the tenants, the kingdom of heaven is taken away completely from the antagonists therein, and instead they are crushed by a stone. The parable of the ten virgins has the antagonists locked out of the kingdom of heaven forever, locked out of the wedding feast, and in the parable of the talents and of the wedding feast, uh, has the unrighteous antagonist cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. No longer are the parables 
of, uh, of the, the pearl of great price and the uh, prodigal son, but we see these very dark and macabre parables foretelling the judgment upon all of the unrighteous. So after being hailed as king, Jesus could have very easily, which is probably what I would have done, uh, capitalized on the fame and the glory that was being given to him uh, and sort of stirred up the people toward his, uh, toward his own goals, or well, Jesus' goals, of course, were in complete accord with, the, with God the Father. But any uh, sinful person could have used that opportunity to stir up the people against the Roman Empire and spurred a, rev a revolt. Uh, he could have, any lesser person probably would have used that opportunity to drive a revolution. But uh, Jesus was not there for a political revolution, of course. He used this last week in these parables and his discourses with the seven woes to highlight man's ultimate need for a righteous savior to assuage their guilt in the ultimate sense, not just a temporary assuaging of guilt, but an ultimate assuaging of guilt so that they could become uh, perfect in the eyes of God the Father. He could have told his followers that they would be victorious uh, instead, what did he promise? Persecution and certain death. He could have pitted the Pharisees against the Romans, but instead he made the Pharisees out to be worse than the Romans. He could have pitted the people against the Pharisees and the Romans, but instead he tells parables to elevate prostitutes as being superior to their pretended and hypocritic, hypocritical righteousness. So at all points, the guilt of mankind is proclaimed and that the judgment is coming very quickly. So, what a downer, right? <laughs> After this triumphal entry in which people are shouting, Hosanna in the highest, throwing palm leaves, waving palm leaves at this king entering the city, Jesus says, all right, here's the deal. You're unrighteous, you need a savior, and judgment is coming quickly. All of this is happening within those five days leading up to the crucifixion. Now on Maundy, what we call Maundy Thursday, Jesus held the Seder in the upper room where it became clear to the disciples that Jesus knew he was going to die. And they knew at that point, I think, maybe they knew beforehand, but I think it was very clear at that point that Jesus was not there to be a political leader. Is that this upper room where he points out the future betrayal in Simon Peter and the current betrayal in his other disciple, Judas? But after this sort of pessimistic dinner in which he, he calls his disciples out for their own unrighteousness, uh, the Gospel of John records Jesus' discourse of sublime peace on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, in which he tells his disciples, keep in mind everything that I've said up to this point, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to have a bad time. Nevertheless, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So despite this uh, message of persecution, Jesus wants his disciples to know that ultimately he is in control. He goes on to reassure them of their salvation and that the Holy Spirit will be, all, will be with them always and teach them. And he tells them, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And in his high priestly prayer, 
He intercedes uh, passionately uh, with those who are given him and uh, prays to God the Father, for their sake I consecrate myself that they, his people, may also be sanctified in truth. So after encouraging his uh, disciples and telling them to pray to be kept free from temptation, Jesus removed himself from his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he knew at this time what his task entailed. The full weight of his coming task was on his mind. Now, think of it this way. We all know the story of the crucifixion. I don't need to start with the basics there, but keep in mind, it's one thing for someone to be on death row, someone who's been convicted of a crime, to be on death row, and the angst and the anguish that is facing them, waiting for the day of their death. But imagine someone who not only has not committed a crime or been convicted of a crime for which they're supposed to be executed, but has never committed a crime altogether, has never committed any kind of sin, and has to face the, he knows that death is coming, and he has to sit there and wait for it to come to him. Jesus was very human. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. Very God, very human. His agony there in the garden was so great, the weight of his coming punishment so severe, that this perfect man began to sweat so profusely, intensely, that blood secreted out of his pores and formed a pool on the ground. Imagine this man in whom there is or never was any fault whatsoever, shaking in prayer, shaking violently in extreme torment over his coming role, no longer the role as a prophet, priest, and king, but his role now was as the paschal lamb of sacrifice. This paschal lamb was eaten by his disciples just hours before in which he says, This is my body, which is broken for you. This Paschal Lamb in Jewish history was spotless, without blemish, in whom no bones could be broken. This lamb was to be slaughtered in front of the people, placed upon hooks or sticks, and skinned of its outer layer, its abdomen pierced open, and its blood sprinkled upon the altar. Such was the fate of the Paschal Lamb. Uh, We know the story of the Passion very well. Uh, We may not know why it's called the Passion. Uh, When Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out, uh, I I saw that title and figured that this was uh, Jesus being very passionate. Uh, Me not being brought up in the Roman Catholic faith, I had uh, had no idea what the Passion Tide was. But, and you may not either, uh, when you hear the Passion of Christ. The word Passion comes from the Latin word pati, P-A-T-I, And it is to suffer or to endure, ultimately because of one's own doing. We call suffering, we call it suffering passively rather than actively. Uh, To help you understand the uh, import or the connotations of the passion, uh, we also get the same word, we also get uh, the word patient from the same Latin word. And we uh, have a patient in a hospital who is suffering and is not active, but is suffering passively. We also get the word patience from the same word, in which 
someone has the quality of long-suffering and is passive uh, in their uh, interaction with humanity and not aggressive, but rather they are patient. Okay, so this passion, when we talk about the passion, is Christ suffering passively as a lamb, silent lamb, led to the slaughter. This passion required him to sit there and take it. Uh, he was scourged, he was spat upon, and he was humiliated to the lowest degree before man and God. Coming to the trial, uh, John MacArthur has called uh, the trial of Jesus the most unjust trial in human history. It has to be, for this court condemned to death, the only truly innocent person that ever lived. Uh, John MacArthur goes on to explain, uh, historically, in a trial like this, there had to be a consensus of the witnesses. There was not. They were required to fast before executing the death penalty. They did not. They were required to wait three days before executing the death penalty. They did not. So we see in this trial all of the political machinations in place as they changed the charge to suit the judge. What was Jesus originally brought before the Sanhedrin for? Blasphemy. But when they knew that they wanted to put him to death and that they couldn't do it, they changed the charge from blasphemy to treason in front of Pontius Pilate. These are two very different legal charges. Um, during these trials, I think it's also significant that as all this was going on, the witnesses were testifying against Jesus, uh, that none of his disciples came forward to testify on his behalf. Now, it could be that the disciples weren't called to testify on his behalf. Maybe they wanted to. Uh, I happen to think that they saw the writing on the wall and they were afraid for their lives and they didn't want to have anything to do with the trial of Jesus. Maybe they wanted to be spectators, but they did not want to put themselves in harm's way just as Jesus was. Um, <clears throat> the high priests recognized that Jesus was disrupting the political structure of the day. Uh, remember how we discussed earlier how the Pharisees had kind of become champions of the people in their early days. They were kind of the, uh, the small-d democratic uh, party that was, uh, had the, the, the interests of the people in mind. But nevertheless, as they became more powerful and established and in place in the Sanhedrin, uh, they, they evolved themselves into this bureaucratic web of legalism and uh, regulation, and basically they, they were in power to preserve their own power and their perpetuity. After the, the Sanhedrin, Jesus was led before Pilate, who found no reason to convict Jesus under Roman law. So he sent him back to Herod. Herod sent him back to Pilate, where uh, Pilate figured, if, I'm, if I can do anything to satisfy these people who want him dead, maybe I can just have him flogged. So Pilate ordered Jesus to be flogged, beaten, stripped of his skin and his clothes. The flagellum that was used in the flogging of Christ was not just a whip with a cord. Fastened to these cords, the Roman flagellum, fastened to these cords of many tails, not just a cat of nine, but a, a, of many tails, were hooks like fish hooks and nails and jagged pieces of metal that were tied around these cords so that when the whip hit someone's back, 
it would dig into the skin and pull it out. It was not just a lashing. It was a fish hook into the skin and ripped out. 39 times Jesus was flogged in this way. And afterwards, Pilate impressed, and the Bible says, twisted a crown of thorns on Jesus' head, piercing his skull and causing blood to pour out of his head. Pilate, I, I think he saw what was going on here, and he, he realized that this was not, he, he couldn't put Jesus to death in a just way, and so he wanted to attempt some kind of justice, uh, and he offered the crowd a choice between Jesus, who had already been beaten, flogged, and humiliated, a choice between Jesus and this other criminal who had no regard for the law whatsoever, whose name was Barabbas. Pilate offered them a choice in this crowd, and the Greek word there is oklos. If you remember our discussion on oclocracy, which is mob rule, that's what this crowd was. Clamored for Barabbas instead of Jesus. I think uh, Pilate had had enough. <laughs> he realized that Jesus had been punished quite enough and didn't want to go any further. He puts Jesus before the crowd in all of his humiliation with this mocking purple robe about him and this crown of thorns pressed upon his head, blood pouring from every part of his body. And he tells the, the crowd, Eke homo, or behold this man. Jesus stood before this crowd, unrecognizable to anyone who ever knew him, his skin hanging from his body as a result of these lashings and these fish hooks and jagged pieces of metal, ripping it out. This purple robe was draped about him as a mockery to his professed station as the king of the Jews. And Pilate was making an attempt to satisfy the crowd with public humiliation rather than execute the death penalty unjustly. Nevertheless, the crowd shouted back after Pilate shouts, Eke homo, behold this man. They shout, this is not enough. Crucify him. Crucify him. This oclos, this crowd, this mob grew even louder over the protest of Pilate and say, away with this man, release to us this common criminal who has no regard for the law, release to us Barabbas, crucify, crucify Jesus. Notice they did not call for Jesus to be stoned. The first stone in that case would have to be thrown by the accusers. And if they did so falsely, not only would they be guilty of perjury, but they would be guilty of murder. So they called for him to be crucified. Crucifixion is about the most horrible death sentence that the Romans had at their disposal. Uh, such was the hatred among these antagonists for Jesus. They went immediately, not to the electric chair, not to lethal injection, not even death by hanging. But if we think back a couple hundred years, they went to what would have been disembowelment and being drawn and quartered. That was, the mo that was the harshest death penalty that we had in the American colonies. And it was reserved specifically for people charged with treason. So crucifixion was like this ultimate death sentence, the, the worst possible sentence that you could imagine. Cicero called crucifixion upon a cross the absolutely cruelest and most offensive, hideous, foul penalty that could have ever been issued. And here the crowd is calling for Jesus to be crucified. 
they threatened to turn, the, the crowd threatened to turn uh, against Pilate to report him to Caesar as an unfit ruler, incapable of keeping the peace. They threatened to riot until Jesus was crucified. Um, Pilate, incidentally, was relieved of his post uh, later by Caesar, but it was on a completely unrelated manner. So what is Pilate to do? And I'm not trying to portray Pilate as some uh, noble person or sympathetic, uh, uh, maybe a pseudo-Christian. I'm not trying to portray that at all. But the reality of the case was he was trying to balance the Roman system of law as well as control this crowd who was threatening to revolt. So Pilate absolutely feared for his political future, and he allowed this tiny mob to defeat the entire justice system of the Roman Empire. So, Jesus, so Pilate ordered Jesus to be crucified. Jesus, remember, he had already been beaten, whipped, flogged, crown of thorns placed upon his head, blood is still pouring from his body. Jesus was led out of the city toward Golgotha, or Calvary, and he was forced to carry upon his back his own mode of execution. This cross probably weighed about 300 pounds. Anyone carried 300 pounds of wood? And it was, I mean, it wasn't like the lumber you get at Lowe's or Home Depot. This was crudely fashioned wood with splinters coming out of every inch of the wood. And he's carrying this cross on his back that is already stripped of its skin, flesh and meat exposed to the sun and to all of these splinters in the wood. And the physical exertion, I'm sure, caused the heart to beat faster, which caused the blood to pump faster, which caused the blood coming out of his wounds to issue more profusely. The crowds were mocking him as he was marching this half mile. All right, 300, carrying 300 pounds for a half a mile is... No small feat. Imagine doing so when you've already been whipped and beaten. But on this Via Dolorosa, Via Dolorosa they, there were uh, among the crowd people who were weeping and lamenting his coming death. As he reached the climax of the hill, he dropped the cross, was put to lay down on the cross in a supine position. Nails were placed as he was laying down into his hands and into his feet. Afterwards, after he was laying down, the Romans hoisted up the cross and didn't just stand it up. They dropped it into a hole about two feet. Imagine being jarred as you're hanging on the cross. Dropped into a hole about two feet so that the cross would not fall over. At this point... Jesus on the cross, the sins of the world were on him. The sins of those whom he would redeem were imputed on him just as the sins of the nation of Israel were imputed upon the scapegoat during the Day of Atonement. Physically, Jesus was a mass of bloody flesh with no attractive, no attractive qualities about him whatsoever. But spiritually, he was even more repugnant Every type of sin imaginable was put on him. Every guilt imaginable was put on his spiritual constitution. Every vile sin committed by those whom he would redeem, every sort of lechery, every sort of thievery, every sort of murder, every proud moment, every transgression of and want of conformity to the law of God, 
Every type was therefore placed on his physical burden. During the crucifixion, the world went dark. Thallus, a second century Roman historian, tried to explain the darkness away as an eclipse, but uh, Julius Africanus, a slightly later historian, I think he knew better. The earth trembled as God forsook his own son, who now bore every wound imaginable and every sin imaginable. Rocks were displaced, and the haunting sound of landslides roared over the landscapes. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried, knowing himself to be that scapegoat, this sacrificial animal become a curse and ostracized from the face of God with the sins of God's people on its back. After three hours of agonizing physical and spiritual pain, this perfect man, the Son of God, cried out with every last bit of strength he could muster, It is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The earth trembled again, the veil of the temple was rent in two, and exposed the Holy of Holies. The Gentile soldiers guarding him witnessed all of this, and they knew that this man truly was the Son of God. This was the work, this was the torture, this was the death required to satisfy the wrath of God. A perfect man who lived a perfect life in complete obedience to the law of God. A prophet, priest, and king who offered himself willingly as an unblemished scapegoat to incur the wrath of God for the sins of the same people that he would redeem. This was the Son of God made flesh to suffer physically and spiritually to a degree that I don't think we could ever imagine. Uh, I, I, for one, am very grateful that we have this Christ who went willingly to suffer, never mind the sins of the world, but just to suffer for my sins. I got the better end of the deal on this. We are truly a double beneficiary of the work of Christ the sacrifice of Christ. Not only did he take our sins upon him, but in doing so, he also imputed toward us or gave us in our bank account a cloak of perfect righteousness so that we can be seen as holy before God. The sources uh, in the Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, describe a week in the life of a man more in more detail than any other historical figure of the time period. The significance of these events were so ingrained upon their hearts and inspired by the Holy Spirit that they set their experience down in writing so that we might also understand its significance. But without the crucifixion, without the cross, we have no gospel. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without the crucifixion, we have no crucial moment in Christianity. We have no crux of the matter upon which all of our hope hangs. Our guilt and grief has been borne by this paschal lamb of God, the scapegoat upon whom all of our sins are imputed. We participated in that crucifixion by our want of conformity unto God's law and our transgressions of it. Our guilt hangs upon that sacrifice. It was not our work. It was indeed the work of Christ that saved us, his perfect life and ministry and his submission to an unjust death that has made us just and perfect in the eyes of God. Our work put Jesus on the cross. Jesus' work saved us. Without the perfection of Christ, our crucifixion before God would be inevitable. Without the crucifixion of Christ, our perfection before God would be impossible. 
thank you for indulging me uh, <laughs> during this time. Uh, I had to stick to my notes because I don't want to get it wrong. Um, this is a, a topic that's too important to me. I don't want to go off on my own uh, suppositions. Um, but I hope you have an appreciation for what Jesus had to go through to be our atonement, to make us, give us even the possibility of entering in the presence of God. Pastor, would you close us in prayer, please? Blessed Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the atonement, for satisfying your justice, for graciously giving us all things the righteousness of Christ, the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for making sure it was all put in writing for us doing this so publicly for us. God, we thank you for this, this good news that we are made right with you on the cross. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.